So a few summers ago, I was walking through the airport in St. Louis on my way to some conference in Munich, Germany. And on my way through the airport, a very large, uh, very muscular man approached me. And the first thing that I noticed wasn't so much his size, although intimidating, was a shirt that he wore with uh, a very angry nun spewing vulgarities. And uh, the picture of the nun had her middle finger extended and she was saying F-U-F the world. And as this man approached me, I didn't know how to, oh, I don't know, <laughs> cut some of the tension and <laughs> stress that I was feeling. And so I simply said, what's up with the shirt? And amazingly enough, he came to a standstill like a, like a four-year-old kid and started buffing the ground with his foot. And he said, Father, he said, I hate myself so much. I want the rest of the world to hate me. And we talked, and it was an amazing moment. I said, sir, the fact that you would stop a priest in a busy airport terminal and tell me your life story in this way tells me that God has not given up on you. There's still a lot of grace in your soul. And we prayed together, and I blessed him. My plane to Chicago, the reason I told you I was going to Munich, because I had to get to Chicago to catch the transatlantic flight, um, was canceled. So I had to come back the next day to the St. Louis airport. And on my way out, I noticed that this man had turned his shirt inside out. And it occurred to me on that evening that this is precisely Augustine's understanding of sin. Where we feel rejected, where we feel unknown, where we feel uh, broken, we continue to break ourselves all the more. But precisely because this man felt some compassion for me, he felt hopefully some love, he started to let the remedy of charity mend his heart. Who knows what happened, you know, an hour later, but mm-hmm. I have to admit, if he'd have been three foot five, I probably wouldn't have responded with such uh, docility and charity. I probably would have let my own fallen machismo come out and ridiculed him and berated him for wearing a shirt like that. Uh, and so God really spoke to me at that moment. And I was thinking about this kind of book on self-loathing, sin as self-sabotage for a while. And that moment put these pages of the new book really into, into print for me. That was a, that was a watershed moment that let me sit down at my desk and get this book done. That's my guest for today's episode, Father David McConey. My name's Matt Cheminsky. This is the Curious Catholic Podcast. In the second book of his confessions, St. Augustine narrates and reflects upon the now famous pear-stealing scene of his youth. Addressing himself to God, he says, Close to our vineyard, there was a pear tree laden with fruit. This fruit was not enticing, either in appearance or in flavor. We nasty lads went there to shake down the fruit and carry it off at dead of night, after prolonging our games out of doors until that late hour, according to our abominable custom. We took enormous quantities, not to feast on ourselves, but perhaps to throw to the pigs. We did eat a few. But that was not our motive. We derived pleasure from the deed simply because it was forbidden. Look upon my heart, O God. Look upon this heart of mine, on which you took pity in its abysmal depths. Enable my heart to tell you now what it was seeking in this action, which made me bad for no reason, 
in which there was no motive for my malice except malice. The malice was loathsome, and I loved it. I was in love with my own ruin, in love with decay, not with the thing for which I was falling into decay, but with decay itself. For I was depraved in soul, and I leapt down from your strong support into destruction, hungering not for some advantage to be gained by the foul deed, but for the foulness of it. So the focus of today's episode is St. Augustine's understanding of sin as self-sabotage and why it is that we do the things we always ultimately regret and accuse ourselves of. Of course, in his life, Augustine comes to know the healing and rest found in the person of Christ, incarnate, crucified, risen, and extended through his body, the Church. Guiding us through all of this today is Father David Vincent McConey, who is Associate Professor of Historical Theology as well as the Director of the Catholic Studies Center at St. Louis University. He is also the Editor of Homiletic and Pastoral Review. Father earned his doctorate in Ecclesiastical History from the University of Oxford. He has published numerous books and articles on the early Church and on St. Augustine in particular. Today we'll be discussing his recently published book, Augustine on Self-Harm, Narcissism, Atonement, and the Vulnerable Christ, available from Bloomsbury Press. Here's Father talking about Augustine and his buddies doing some late-night pear-stealing. In book two of the Confessions, Augustine recalls some, <clears throat> some stealing of pears, which in and of itself is not that big of a deal, but 30 years later it's occurring to him that this moment of stealing pears for absolutely no reason except that he, it was forbidden is a meta-narrative, if you will. It's almost an iconic window into sin itself. And it bothered Augustine because he admitted that because it was forbidden, he became his own sovereign. He became his own God. That because he uh, let community fall away, he let rules and virtue fall away, he became... Uh, ultimately his own creator. And he admits, I did this because I was in love with my own ruin. And that's a real paradoxical understanding of sin. For Augustine, we sin because even though I know this moment is not the greatest moment, at least it's mine. The world that my vice and my bad habits have created may not be the, the best world, but at least it's mine. And Augustine argues that every sin um, since the beginning of time it's really an echoing of Genesis 3-5, where Satan says to Adam and Eve, you know, if you do this, you will be like God. And Augustine's very clear, and I think very wise, that when we sin, we remove ourselves from any kind of community. Now, of course, the God that we become isn't a Trinitarian God in which self-donation and self-gift and other-centered love is the essence of who, who one is. It's a kind of a pagan God that is no more by power and destruction than, than self-gift. Right. And, you know, in your, in your explaining of Augustine's treatment of the Genesis text, you highlight that, you know, the, the, the tempter holds out to Adam and Eve that which they don't yet have, namely right. divinity. You couldn't be tempted by something you already possessed, nor could you be tempted by something about which you had no idea. Because we're created in the divine image, we're created for God, our ultimate aim in life is to become like God. And all the church fathers knew that, but it's got to be on God's term, not on, not on ours. And so sin 
is this attempt to deify ourselves apart from the, de- the, the true triune deity then. Exactly. Yeah, it's a self-manufactured kind of uh, divinization, which Second Peter 1.4 tells us that in Christ we can partake of the divine nature, but we never possess it. If we think we can do this for ourselves, and if we think we have a godliness apart from God, what we really have is, is the enemy. What we really have is sin and destruction. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if we could return to this idea of Augustine saying, I was in love with my own ruin. And you, you mentioned that it's paradoxical because, you know, as you say in the book, one sort of longstanding traditional understanding of sin is that we're pursuing some good, right? Just exactly. in, in illicit, by illicit means, but... By Augustine saying, I was in love with my own ruin, that he, he wanted his own decay, that seems to run a little contrary to that other notion of sin. Yeah, it's a great paradox. In fact, after the pear tree scene, he talks about Catiline, who tried to overthrow the Roman government. He talks about an adulterer who will kill his lover's husband. Uh, and he says, you know, I, I get those things. They're, they're ugly, but at least that person's going after something. Right. And Augustine is bothered by the pear tree scene because he can't really grasp what it is he's going after. And I think ultimately what he's going after is becoming his own his own sovereign, his own deity. It's the story of every great epic, you know, it's Milton's Paradise Lost, that it's better to reign in, in hell than serve in heaven. Um, we can't choose evil as evil. We do choose it under the guise of some good. And the, the lowest good, I think, is simply the assertion of our own wills. Um, usually we assert our will towards some objectifiable good. But for Augustine here, he's just really exerting his will just to show that he can do it. This came to me one night. I was talking to a dear friend who, um, there are four little boys around the table. I didn't know I called during dinner time. And I said, what are they fighting about? And she said, oh, nothing. They're just exerting their wills. And I thought, oh, what a wise mother. Um, and I think that's probably the lowest possible exertion of our wills just for the sake of being heard, for the sake of being known. I mean, Look at other forms of self-abuse. Look at the cutting phenomenon. The mm-hmm. people who suffer from that say, well, at least I feel something, right? right? It's not good. It's not pleasant. But at least there's something there under the surface. And so, I mean, Augustine's, you know, and as, as you were writing, you know, he's, he's creating these idols within the self. But, um, and you mentioned earlier that this notion that the idol, it's like a pagan idol that we set up, set up within the self. I guess, is it out of ourself or, or some portion of ourself? Is that what he's trying to get across? Yeah, maybe an extension of ourselves. It's that self that feels unworthy of perfection. And I think what I had tried to do in the book is argue that before the sins of pride, envy, wrath, and so on, the ultimate primal sin is not wanting to be loved. It's that form of self-hatred, self-loathing, and the enemy knows it. Uh, think of when Satan strikes the Lord. Forty days in the desert. You, you have to wonder, isn't Jesus thinking, does anybody anybody miss me? Anybody looking for me? Right. He's out of his comfort zone. He's out of his routine. He's away from his friends and companions. And that's precisely when Satan strikes, when one feels unloved, unwanted. And how does he strike? If you are the son of God, turning these, you know. If we think about how the enemy works, which Augustine knew quite well, Satan will always attack those places where we feel unloved or unknown. And I think this really comes to the fore in the temptations of Christ. Notice Jesus is away for 40 days. He's away from his companions. He's away from his routine, his support system, his friends. 
And Satan knows when to strike. That's precisely Augustine's point about the pairs. Where we feel unloved, where we feel unworthy, where we feel unknown is precisely when the enemy and where the enemy will arise. Think of the sins of anonymity. Oftentimes, our deepest sins are festered and fostered in the dark, not in public or in the light. And notice how Satan strikes. If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread and whatnot. If he attacks the only begotten Son of God, how much more will he attack the adopted children of God by tempting us to think that the Father doesn't delight in us, that God doesn't love us, that we're not his children? Because where we feel where we feel orphaned, we feel that we can do whatever we want when we want. And the whole point of the letter of the Hebrews is that true children learn obedience through suffering, through discipline. I was wondering if we could maybe transition to the beginning of your book and you're uh, relating Augustine's theology of the Trinity and how it's so important to see them as being in uh, of their very essence relationship with each other and in a way defined by their relationships with each other. And there's a certain essential vulnerability there, which is what kind of makes a nice segue into consideration of sin, as you're saying this, this sense of vulnerability um, and, and how that can be exploited by temptations to evil, but also uh, could be the sort of key toward our own theosis eventually. But why did you start with the, with the Trinity bit? The book starts with Augustine's Theology of the Trinity, because for him, that is, for any Christian, I would imagine, it's the primal pattern of all reality that Augustine developed uh, Trinitarian thought in the 5th century by, he coined a term, substantial relationship. If you think of it, all the relationships in our lives are what Aristotle calls accidental. We have people calling podcasts, we have people hang up, we have teachers come in and out of our lives, we have friends that move and so on. There's no one relationship that totally defines who we are. That Matt, before you were a father, you were Matt, that having children changed you a little bit, but we still understood who you were. Mm-hmm. Not that way with the Trinity. The father is 100% dependent upon his son to be father. He has no divinity unto himself. This is the amazing thing about the Christian reflection on the Trinity. Three persons, one substance, right? The Cappadocian settlement. That three persons share equally one very being, one nature. And so what distinguishes these beings can't be being, because there's only one. What distinguishes them is relationship. And Augustine coined this term substantial relationship, meaning what it means to be a divine person is to be relationship, be wholly other-centered, to be wholly gifted toward the other and to depend on the other to be who uh, he is. The father couldn't be father if he didn't have a son and, and so on. And it always struck me when Christ says, be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect. I think most of us think of perfection in terms of autonomy or aloofness. Or in the Christian sense, maybe perfection is a certain vulnerability, a certain intimacy, a certain other-centeredness that brings us out of ourselves and makes us more and more aware of others. One little test case I give my students, I ask them, I say, how many people in your day do you say I love you to? And, you know, there'll be a dozen people maybe. Um, In some ways, I love you can even be kind of a flippant goodbye. I love you. And uh, But I ask them, how many people to whom do you really say I need you? There's maybe only one or two, and that gives us a glimpse into Augustine's understanding of the Trinity. The Father needs the Son to be Father. He couldn't be the first person in the Trinity without a second person, and so on. And so for Augustine, growing an awareness of the self-gift of relationship, growing an awareness of how the divine persons are wholly other-centered, brought him out of a pagan kind of monad God and seeing a God who's total gift. 
that all persons are ultimately relations. And that's what it means to be created in the divine image and likeness. No other creature is created for the sake of relationship, created for an archetype, um, a model in whose image and likeness we've been made. And that renders us then uh, in need of being open and vulnerable to others then is, is sort exactly. of the anthropological implication then, right? And then, yeah. and then sin, right? So, you know, I'm just trying to work through this, you know, in my own mind, this vulnerability is, is risky, right? It's, it could be messy. It could be harmful. Um, and so relationship is always risky because you're no longer at the center of your world. And that's what makes sin so pleasing. I, I have to count to no one, at least for a minute or two, as I swear, as I lust, as I uh, think of myself proudly, I become my own little God. Right. Right. And then, so we, we, we sort of make ourselves these little deities, at least for a period, but then that's going to lead, as Augustine's saying, and as you relate in the book to self-loathing and, and a destruction of those idols, which leads then to self-hatred, right? And, and the sense of self-sabotage is that, is that sort of the thread that connects it all, you know, in short form? That's right. Yeah. In the book, I quote Joseph Pieper, the great German Thomist, who says, to say, I love you to another is to say, I'm glad that you exist. And I actually dedicate the book to those who want to disappear. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that when you hate someone, you wish they weren't there. And when we hate ourselves, we want to waste away too. And we can see that in all forms of isolation and self-abuse and self-harm. We see it when people want to waste away and become nothing. They leave no trail of who they are. And that's ultimately, to me, and I think Augustine agrees, that's the primal sin, just wanting to disappear. It is better that you don't exist. And we can say that to ourselves, uh, sadly enough. And you highlight this dichotomy that we're, we're, we're sort of these two poles that we're always in between in this life. Union ultimately with the God that can satisfy and nothingness, right? So exactly. why then? You know, we Christians don't take time to think about this. God only has one ultimate rival. It's nothing. Mm. <laughs> nothing rivals God. Um, even Satan has uh, a trace of the divine goodness within him, right? right. Um, he has existence, he has intellect, he has will. The sin of this world isn't two opposing armies, it's a civil war. Uh, the only ultimate enemy to God is is nothing. And we're created, right? Ex nihil, we're created from God and from nothing. And those are ultimately the two choices we waver between our whole lives, choosing the fullness of being or choosing the nothingness um, that is also ironically a possibility. So what could it, what could be appealing about the nothing then? Um, you know, why would we askew the sort of ultimate transcendent good for this disappearance? Yeah. Well, why do any of us sin? Right. Augustine's very clever. He says evil doesn't have an efficient cause. It has a deficient cause. It's the mystery of iniquity will always be there. Why do I, why do I sin? Well, I think Augustine's answer is the closest I can get to an answer is because you want to be your own reality. Even if that means you dwindle into nothing, at least it's your nothing. Mm-hmm. You're not accountable. You're not vulnerable. You're not um, aware of others. So there is an appeal there every time we sin, I think. So would you say that sin is always isolating? It's always sort of buffering ourselves from others? Yeah. Okay. I think so. Even the sins of, you know, illicit copulation where you think, oh, this is great intimacy. No, you're really doing this for yourself and the other person doesn't ultimately matter to you. Right. He or she is just an object of your own fallen poverty. 
It reminds me of uh, Lewis's uh, great divorce. And, yeah. and hell is always sort of, you know, you got the individuals and the space between them is ever extending. It's interesting, though, when you're thinking about this desire to disappear, this desire to be our own sovereign, and there, even if that leads to our own self-imposed annihilation as an as a expression of pride, which seems counterintuitive at first. So could you kind of explain the couple senses of pride that Augustine treats? Well, so in Augustine's Latin, pride is superbia, super bios, to be above life. And the proud person in one way is defined by removing oneself from, from the community. When one is proud, one thinks one's above the common lot, one's above life, superbia, that um, I can do it on my own, that I am the only one that matters. Uh, no one quite understands me. Um, who am I hurting at this point? You can hear all of those little voices in any moment of sin. And that's what pride does. It removes us from community. I tell my students there are two kinds of pride, and there's boy pride, which is machismo, bravado, get out of my way or I'll knock you down. Mm -hmm. And then there's a girl pride. Uh, everybody else is beautiful, but I'm not. Everybody else is well put together, but not me. Both of those, ironically, are removing themselves from community. Both are saying the rules apply to everyone but me. And you can do that in an inflated way or in a deflated way. And obviously, this isn't limited to just gender, but I see that pattern more and more. Um, in young young men and young women differing in that way. But both are uh, certain forms of pride. Right. And, uh, you know, it reminds me of your use of the myth of uh, Narcissus and, yeah. and sort of the rootedness, uh, sort of in his beholding of his self as he flees the, the demands of community, I guess you could say, right? Exactly. Everybody knows the Narcissus story that he takes up with himself at the pond's edge what we forget is back up a chapter. He's actually out hunting and he's being pursued by the forest nymph Echo and Echo falls in love with him. He's this beautiful young man. And so she chases him and he wants nothing to do with community. He wants nothing to do with love or romance or other. And so he flees her in order to do what? Take up with himself. And the Narcissus story is much more powerful when we remember the, the antecedent story that he ends up loving himself because he refuses to be loved by anyone else. And this is one of Augustine's mainstays, that we can't not love. We have to love. The question is, do we love rightly or wrongly? When we love rightly, it's always a matter of grace and cooperation and otherness. When we love wrongly, it's always a self-isolation and a self-imposed kind of distance, both from community and even our truest selves. Right. Right. There's this, you highlight, there's this way in which Augustine is high, is sort of perceptive of the fact that within ourselves, we have sort of that which longs for God and longs for redemption and healing and, and salvation. And then that which sort of wants to reject that out of hand, right? Mm -hmm. Two selves in a way. So right. where does, you know, you end with the incarnation beautifully. Um, it was a great chapter. I was, uh, you know, engaged thoroughly by it. So where does the incarnation or why does the incarnation, in a sense, have to happen to correspond to the types of beings we are? I don't know. You don't put it exactly that way, but that's a sense I got. Like the incarnation is fit for us in our in our mm -hmm. fallenness. Yeah, that's a great question. I guess I would put it this way: that God wanted to show us that deformity, ugliness, death is a vehicle of the divine, and we who are ugly and sinful and dying can see even there our redemption. And that's why the cross is so powerful. 
I mean, think about the crucifix that we Catholics have in our homes, in our pockets, on our rosaries, in the middle of our sanctuaries. What is God telling us about love? He's saying, look, even here, I am present. What can be the ultimate fear? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But even there, Christ is, is speaking, is inviting us. And I think Augustine's Christ is the broken, mystical Messiah who makes himself small to enter every human life and every human condition in order to not just stay there, but then heal and elevate us back into himself. Augustine's definition of the church, the totus Christus, the whole Christ is, is beautiful and really game-changing. That when you understand Christ's full reality includes his church, his people, like any father would feel incomplete without his children or wife, right? That's what love does. It makes us vulnerable and identifiable with our beloved. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Whatever you do the least of my brothers and sisters, you do to me. That's the humble Christ. That's what Christ is affecting in the incarnation. That's why God came to us as one of us. And you highlight that for Augustine, the wounds that Christ bears are signs of hope, you know, in, in that they are identified with our own woundedness. And I was thinking, you know, oftentimes, you know, the, the wounds of Christ are upheld, uh, you know, around Good Friday every year is sort of a, you know, an accusation against us in the sense that, you know, to move us towards contrition and maybe in, a, in an overly negative fashion, like a sort of a, um, a finger wagging at us. But with Augustine, it seems to have more of a sense of hopefulness, this wounded, broken, vulnerable, pierced Christ. Yeah. So Augustine spent many, many years reflecting on the Gospel of John. And in the 20th chapter there, when Christ comes back from the dead, he shows the disciples his wounds and they rejoice. And I don't know of anywhere else in ancient literature in which wounds elicit joy. It's usually revenge or sorrow. Um, and Augustine, I think, because of his own, if you will, scenic roots to sainthood, um, understood the uh, the ups and downs, the, the progress and um, backpedaling of human conversion, the gradualness and the slowness of it all. And in those wounds, he was able to see, I think, God's mercy in a way that if he'd been perfect, a kind of saint from the crib, he never would have understood. And we certainly wouldn't have the Augustine we do. Right. And uh, I, I actually wrote down a line uh, that you wrote that was, I think, quite uh, concise, but rich, kind of talking about the woundedness of, of Christ as being related to our own deification. You said uh, the son's kenosis is humanity's theosis. Could you unpack yeah. that for us? Yeah, that's an, that's an ancient patristic trope, a little poem there, that Philippians 2, that the son empties himself of divinity. And we Christians all agree on this, right? That God became human. But that's only the first half of a two-act play. The other half now is that we uh, fall in love with God in such a way that we become like him. So in the first half of the play, kenosis, God empties himself. God becomes human. Why? Second half of the play, so theosis, that we become godly. And what we mean by godly, of course, isn't to be some independent sovereign or ruler of one's own reality. It means to become superhuman, to love our enemies, to pray for our persecutors, um, to be able to live the Beatitudes. No human can do those. Those aren't naturally possible, but they are supernaturally, and that's what grace does. And this is something Augustine, I think, would want us to recover today, that to be a Christian isn't certainly to do this or that. It's to become a different kind of person. It's to become godly. It's to become, as he says, another Christ, that you are extensions of the Incarnation. That's exactly what John 15, um, I no longer call you 
servants, I call you friends. Well, what's a friend? According to Aristotle and Cicero and the classical tradition, a friend is another self, that we are the vines grafted onto that great branch of Jesus. So the, un- the incarnation is still ongoing in us. And that's really Augustine's, I think, main contribution to theology, to see that charity unites the lover and the beloved. I tell my students, if you want to understand Christianity, just look at how your own heart works on the best of its days. What do we all want? We want community. We understand what it's like to be with friends when we're all in agreement and harmony. And we're all hitting on all eights. Things are nice and good. Um, that's precisely what Christ wants for us. He wants us to think and act and love and feel um, rightly. And when we do, we become more and more Christ-like. I mean, in fact, what is Augustus' definition of heaven? He says, in the end, there'll be one Christ loving himself. Mm. And that is quite a strong image. Sin defaces, depersonalizes. Virtue and charity make us more and more perfect. We, we actually gain our identity when we um, do something noble. Think about that. When you sin, you look down, you're ashamed. When you do something good, you feel alive and transparent and don't mind people finding out who you are and what you've been doing. And this kind of strikes on the the ideas that you're you were dealing with at the end of the book regarding uh, there being no distinction between secular love and sacred love or godlike love. It's all it's all of one nature substance. So Augustine eventually, towards the end of his life, sees no I guess rival. You know, if it's authentically loving, then this is going to be right. of God, right? Right. Exactly. I mean, in fact, he he what, what's been called the daring inversion. He says if if God is love, then love is God. And we live in a culture in which people say love is love. That's right. But that's also a tautology, right? It's true, but it conveys no information. Mm -hmm. Love is love. Love is God. But if you want to know what love is, you go to something like 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is never self-seeking. That love has particular expressions and expectations. And so for Augustine, the trick of growing up and growing holy is distinguishing between what's truly love and what's kind of a faint imitation maternal instinct, lust, of course, the need to be recognized, the need to be wanted. All those things may come to us under the guise of love, but they're not ultimately love. And in the end, we'll see that they weren't. I tell my students, if you are dating or if you're with someone and you're not doing everything you can to get that person to heaven, you're not truly loving him or her. You may call premarital sex love, but it's not. Um, you're, you're helping that person toward his or her damnation, not toward heaven. And that's ultimately what love is. And in the end, we're going to see that. And so the beautiful thing is we don't need to distinguish between sacred love and secular love. If we love all things rightly, our passions, our hobbies, our families, of course, our friends, we will see in the end those were eternal steps into heaven. And that's where the great divorce, I think, is so well done. Mm-hmm. Lewis's book on the afterlife, that how we love is precisely how we spend eternity. Right. Uh, so would you give any tips for discerning sort of in the practical nitty gritty days uh, that we have uh, in this life between, I guess, false and illusory loves and the authentic loves uh, or, or ways of loving, I guess you could say? Well, I think this is why having the saints lives in the forefront of our minds is so important, not just the scriptures, but seeing how the life of Christ is lived out in very practical ways that are closer to our own life situations as husbands and wives, as bankers, mm-hmm. as workers, um, the things that Christ does in others. And I guess one way of distinguishing is just asking yourself at the end of each day, did I move my community, my friends, my family closer to heaven today? Did I tell them God loves them? Did I give them a good example? Did I model holiness? Or 
Did I take my frustrations out on them? Did I, did I criticize them wrongly, unjustly, inordinately, and so on? And it's a little each day. Um, so Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits, the order to which I belong, has a great line. It says, God in all things. And that every moment of our lives, we're either moving closer to God or away from God, depending on how we love and treat things as they are to be treated. I want to thank Father David McConey for his time and insight into the life and thought of St. Augustine. I highly recommend his new book, which again is titled On Self-Harm, Narcissism, Atonement, and the Vulnerable Christ, published by Bloomsbury Academic. You can follow the link in the show notes to go get a copy for yourself. I very much want to thank you for listening. I hope you keep doing so as, as we journey through the Catholic imagination each episode. If you can find a moment to help out this show, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or give us a top-shelf rating. Perhaps you can write us an over-the-top review that stretches the limits of truth, or maybe you could just text a friend about the show. In our next episode, I'll be talking with Paul Camacho from Villanova University. We'll be discussing the 2011 movie The Tree of Life, which stars Brad Pitt, Jessica Chastain, and Sean Penn. As you'll hear in that episode, My guest sees that movie as a sort of Augustinian confession, which I think is a particularly intriguing and beautiful way of viewing this fantastic film. Until then, let's continue journeying further up and further in.